2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about fighting, about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on, the, on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent, or had sent to tell him. 
The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, or when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God, as we dig into this story, this popular story, but this heavy story, I just pray that you would be with me in the name of Jesus, that you would um, calm any nerves that I have in the name of Jesus, that you would be with me as I speak, that if I say anything that's wrong or untrue, that that would not be believed in the name of Jesus. But I just pray that your truths this morning would be what's believed in the name of Jesus. I pray that your truths would be remembered, and I just pray that you would give each one of us understanding of your word, and speak to each one of us how you want to speak to each one of us in the name of Jesus. Use this in our lives how you want to use it, Lord, and keep us open to them, open to these things that you teach us in the name of Jesus. I thank you so much, Lord, and I just pray that you would be the one in our midst that you would be the one that we're focused on, Lord, and ultimately that you would be glorified in this time, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Being in power is a huge responsibility. I'm sure that doesn't surprise us. You have to make decisions that affect everyone, and you want to make the best ones, usually, but sometimes having the power gives you the opportunity to do some horrific Things. And so the way you're tempted when you have the power changes a bit because so many more opportunities are at your disposal. The potential for the worst crimes of mankind are at your fingertips. And so often the darkest desires of your heart you can get. And it may seem like you're above the consequences. And while if we look at dictators from even our recent history, where we can find some of the most atrocious and repulsive acts done to mankind, and David comes nowhere close to being as bad, David's actions here are still terrible. And it might shock you just how far a man after God's own heart can fall if you haven't really analyzed this story before. So we're going to go through it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to go through it. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, and take note of that, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, their, their enemy from last week's story, the humiliators, and besieged Rabbah, the capital city of the Ammonites. But David remained at Jerusalem. David remained at Jerusalem. At the time when kings go out to battle, Israel's king stays back, which is uncharacteristic for David. David doesn't usually 
stay back from leading his people in battle. And he shouldn't, right? This is an error in his leadership. And instead of being out leading his people, he's at home idle. And sometimes when you're idle, sin has a greater effect when it creeps in to tempt you. And here we see there's no, accept- there's no exception for David. With the power he has, things end up getting horrendous. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. She was uncovered, and so he saw her in a way that only her husband should see her, right? And it says the woman was very beautiful. So, so this just happens, right? It's no fault of David that he just happens to see this, you know? All you have to do is turn your head away, keep walking. But what we're about to see from David is him at his very, very worst. Something is pushing on his heart, saying, I want, I want. Very different from what he writes in Psalm 23, I shall not want, right? I have everything I need in the Lord, my shepherd. Here we see something different, right? We see his heart is set. I want. He already has many wives, which is also not great. Uh, And he, um, of course, also has the Lord. But when he sees this woman bathing and sees how beautiful she is to his eye, his satisfaction in the Lord and what he already has seems to be pushed aside. And he wants something new, something different. And that begins to take over his heart. I want her. I need to find out who she is so that I can have her too. Because where I'm at right now, after seeing this, I'm no longer satisfied. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Wife? She's married? You'd think that would deter him from going after her. But his heart still pushes. I want. I want. Let's take notice of these names as well. So this Bathsheba, she's the daughter of Eliam and the husband of Uriah the Hittite. If you look at the list of David's mighty men who are listed later in this book, in chapter 23, you'll find both Eliam and Uriah. You'll find both of these two. They're both his mighty men, his most loyal warriors, the best of the best. You'd think that even if the first thing, her being married, didn't deter him, that this certainly would. You know, she belongs to those who have fought valiantly, side by side with me in battle. But Satan keeps knocking. The heart feels heavier and heavier with temptation. The temptation of being with this beautiful woman. David allows the voice saying, I want to grow even stronger within him. He knows it's within his power to take her. He knows he can do it. The only thing stopping him are morals. And those are wearing thinner and thinner by the minute until they are broken through and David takes what he wanted ever since he saw her from the rooftop. 
So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. David commits adultery. He sleeps with another man's wife. He gets what he wanted. But then he finds out that this is something that may not stay a secret for very long. It may not stay a secret as he wants it to. It says, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she <coughs> sent and told David, I am pregnant. Bathsheba is with child, and if nothing is done, David is going to be exposed. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So David's intention is that Uriah will go down to his house, stay a bit, and lie with his wife. So that when after he goes back to war, and eventually comes home, and Bathsheba has a child, there's a better chance that he thinks it's his. But of course, Uriah, he doesn't go down to his house. It says, and Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. That's a problem for David's cover-up plan. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? He knows it wouldn't be right of him to enjoy his time back in Jerusalem while everyone else is camping out in the open field in the midst of a war against Ammon. It just doesn't seem right to him. It doesn't sit right with him. This is a call to report to the king, not a holiday when his brothers in arms are out there in harsh, harsh conditions. So he says, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David tries something else, right? He can't let his cover-up fail, no matter the cost. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in the presence, in his presence, and drank so that he made him drunk. So David tries getting him drunk. Maybe then he'll go down to his wife. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. David cannot get him to go. Even drunk, Uriah refuses to take advantage of what his fellow soldiers cannot. But David still cannot let his cover-up fail no matter the cost. And what was already a deeply grievous sin in taking this man's wife comes even worse 
as David will now take this man's life. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Now, I don't know what Joab thought of this. Joab doesn't seem to have a problem with murder, right, as we've seen. I don't know if he perhaps thought, well, I guess Uriah wronged the king in some way. I'm not going to ask any questions, though. But I can see that being the case. Although, even he would know that this is quite uncharacteristic of David. So I'm not 100% sure, you know, what he might have thought. And it also doesn't look like he even needed to pull back from Uriah. I'm not sure if he was going to go through with that plan or not. Uh, but if he did, that would be super obvious to all the soldiers. But it doesn't seem like that's what happens. He does, however, of course, send him to where the fighting is the hardest. Right? It says, and Joab was besieging the city. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. Valiant men being the enemies valiant men. He assigned Uriah to be among those who fought against the enemy's toughest warriors. And the men of the city came out, and they fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among, servants of David among the people, they fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. There it is. The plan worked, and probably even better than David even planned, because it doesn't look like they had to pull back from Uriah for him to be killed. Bathsheba is now a widow, and David can take her as his wife, even though he already has many, and a child belonging to David won't look so suspicious. Then David, or then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, so Joab gives this messenger extra instructions of how to tell this news to David, saying, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? I'm guessing this was a, a well-known example that came up a lot when David was strategizing with his troops. Why did you go near, so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So if David gets upset about his men dying in such an avoidable way, then drop the news about Uriah also being dead, and that should calm him down. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. It seems like the servant didn't want to wait for David to get upset. He just drops the news that Uriah is dead before he's even finished speaking. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, 
Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage it, encourage Joab. So there's no mourning, there's no lamenting. That last bit of news leaves David's heart relieved, maybe even happy. So he basically says, don't let this trouble you. It's war. People die. We know what's behind David. We know what's behind his response, though, right? And so we know how awful a response it truly is. But that's how he reacts. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. David, the man of power, used his power to take exactly what he wanted, even though it didn't belong to him. But even with the greatness of David's power, it did not match the power of the one who gave it to him. And we see what he thinks in the very last sentence of this chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And there will be consequences for his sin that, that really shape the rest of his life. You can cover things up from man, but you can't cover things up from God. He sees everything. David probably knew that too. But again, that pull of I want, I want, I want, and then the urgency of I can't get found out no matter the cost led him to horrific actions. Let's uh, look a little closer at Uriah the Hittite. So he was a Hittite, not an Israelite, a Hittite, but he joined Israel. Now, Israel, God's people, were to be a light to the nations, so that the nations would also come to know the one true God and even follow him, follow his ways. And Uriah the Hittite is an example of someone outside of Israel who was drawn somehow to join Israel. It's as though he saw the light Israel shone and, and as an outsider was drawn to it. And what the leader of Israel, the nation that's supposed to represent God, does to him is take his wife and sentence him to death. Even though the weapon's not in his hand, David murders Uriah. This is the equivalent to someone who sees what the church does, and God uses that to draw him to a saving faith, and that's awesome. But then the pastor of that congregation, a congregation that's supposed to represent Jesus, ends up having an affair with his wife, ends up murdering him, and then takes his wife to be his own because now she's a widow. It, it's sick. It's sick. He should get life in prison. In some states, they give him the death penalty. And you know where else? There is the death penalty. Ancient Israel. David deserves to die. In just one chapter, he's fallen so far from the man of God he once was to this man who pushed his heart to sin in such vile fashion. And though he doesn't face the death penalty, and though there is forgiveness for his sins when he repents in the next chapter, as there is for any of us who repent and place our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, David still, in a way, gets a life sentence. He's still king, of course, 
And the Lord still honors his promise to David that his throne will last forever. It will be established forever. David's line will continue on the throne. But he will suffer in life. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see David's struggles with his children, with his family breaking down all around him in terrible ways. Those struggles stem from this abominable act. I know that our sins can be forgiven. No matter how far you've fallen in the past, there is forgiveness available if you acknowledge that sin and in repentance turn to Jesus, committing your life to him in faith. Like the old hymn, To God Be the Glory, states, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. That is a true statement. Those lyrics are true. Jesus took your death penalty upon himself, and when you accept the innocence that he bought you with his own life, right? he took that blame for your crime, when you accept that gift, his gift to you, you receive innocence in the eyes of God. You receive the righteousness of Christ who lived his life perfectly only to die for you. But even though God does save you from the consequence of hell, that doesn't mean he wipes out every consequence for your sin. And from this point on, that's what David's going to find out. Now, I will say, you know, we all sin, and the bad things that happen in our lives may not be because of our sin. Sin has consequences, but as those who have placed their faith in Christ and have been forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future, because God has already seen them all, and he knows what we will do, not every bad thing we do has grave consequences, and not every bad thing that happens to us is because of sin. I remember when Jesus' disciples, they saw a blind man and they assumed his blindness had been a consequence of sin. In John 9 verse 2, they asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man's blindness is not due to sin, right? It's so that God can show his mighty work when Jesus heals him. So yeah, not every bad thing that happens to us is because of sin. But at the same time, maybe some of the bad things that happen are a consequence of sin. You know, there are also times where we can suffer for doing good. So we can suffer for doing bad, we can suffer for doing good. There's a lot of different reasons why we suffer but as Peter says in chapter 3, verse 17 of his first letter, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Don't bring consequences on yourself by causing others to suffer, and don't bring them on yourself by sinning against God either. Sure, consequences might not always come, but they can always come. Ultimately, that's not the main reason why you shouldn't sin, just to avoid consequences. But if it's, if it's compelling, it might help. But yeah, ultimately though, your reason for choosing not to sin is for the sake of God and others, right? And, and it looks so good sometimes. Of course it does. Satan doesn't make you do anything. That's no excuse. The devil made me do it. That's not an excuse. 
But he does tempt. He does make sin look so good. And you know you shouldn't do it. But you can feel it in your heart. I want. I want. Don't linger there. Don't stay idle. Don't let it overcome you. Flee. God provides a way of escape to every temptation. Flee out of that escape. Flee. Please don't linger there. We might take um, the example of Joseph, for instance. Back in Genesis, when the wife of a man named Potiphar, she tries to seduce him so that he'll sleep with her. What does he do? He flees. Yes, he, he does suffer for that, actually. He suffers for doing good. He's wrongfully accused of adultery and thrown into prison. Eventually, things do get better for him. Uh, but even if things don't get better for us until we pass on to heaven, we still need to flee from our sins. Of course, as always, that's much easier said than done, right? Um, our flesh is still so inclined to choose sin over God, but we've got to pray. We've got to ask for God's help. We've got to lean on God and flee to his provided escape. We cannot linger there. We cannot remain idle and linger in the evil thoughts that Satan presents. Because the more and more you give in to the cries of, I want, I want, I want, the harder it's going to be to turn away from them. Cut it off at the head before it gets going. Push those thoughts out of your mind. Because you never know how big these things are going to grow. For David, it started with lust, you know, adultery of the heart. And then it turned into physical adultery. And then dishonesty, right? And, and trying to lie to cover up. I shouldn't say try to lie. He lied to try and cover it up. And eventually to keep that lie going, there was murder. He murders Uriah. Again, I say please don't linger in your sinful thoughts. Please resist the cry of your sinful flesh. Lean on the Lord and fight to flee. We have an amazing God that we need to represent well. We have his beloved created beings that we need to respect and love as well. And we've also been blessed by him immensely already. He died for us. He's been so gracious toward us. So let's not abuse that grace. And instead of driving people away from him because we represent his church poorly, let's live like him so that we can bring people into the light. And so we can also encourage each other and build each other up in him and serve him well for what he's done for us. It's amazing how much God blessed David. Right? He spared him from Saul. He made him king. He gave him victory wherever he went. He established his throne forever. But when we let our hearts linger in those sinful thoughts, those things seem to fade. And we see one of the most blessed people on earth. Throw it all aside. So again I say, flee from those thoughts. Don't let them linger. Don't let them get started. Don't let them get a hold of you. Keep in the light. Right? Keep close to Jesus. Cling to him. Resist the devil. Count those blessings and stay in the word of God to remind you of those blessings 
so that you don't act like God's done nothing for you. There's no one who loves you more. And there's no one who's done more for you. Bow with me in prayer. God, thank you so, so much for all that you've done for each one of us. Of course, highlighted by your death and resurrection, but there's so many little things as well. Thank you so much, God. And continue to bring those things to mind and help build us into a people that flee from sin, that hate it like you hate it. Help us to grow in holiness. And when those things come, help us to rely on you. Help us to go to you and help us to escape those temptations by the way that you provide. There's no excuse to sin. I know we have a sinful flesh, but there's no excuse to sin. The devil tempts, but he doesn't force us to do anything. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us in our walk with you to flee from sin. And before anything really gets started, to cut it off, Lord. Don't let us linger. Help us not to linger on those sinful thoughts. Thank you so much, Lord. You're wonderful in every way, and I pray this all in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.